Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Youth and Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Siddiqui, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. I'm joined by Professor Noam Chomsky, who is the father of modern linguistics and one of the most influential philosophers, political activists, and intellectuals of our generation. Professor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Very pleased to be with you. So my first question for you is, you've been an outspoken libertarian socialist for almost as long as you've been alive, dating back to the Vietnam War when you were placed on Richard Nixon's enemies list and arrested several times for criticizing the war as an act of American imperialism. According to a recent poll from Axios, about 54% of Gen Z holds a negative view of capitalism, more than any previous generation in American history. I'm curious to know, why do you think Gen Z is more progressive than their predecessors and does this give you any hope for the future that we could one, one day see transformational change in this country? Well, I think the what's called the opposition to capitalism, I think probably is a much more general phenomenon. The world has been subjected to over 40 years of a major assault, the neoliberal assault, which started in the late 70s, took off with Reagan and Thatcher. It's led to a general collapse of uh, the social order, a general disillusionment, anger, resentment, fear, shows up in all kinds of ways. So for example, there's a, in this morning's New York Times, there's a good study, careful study, of why people refuse to be vaccinated, careful study of the unvaccinated. And it concludes reasonably that these are people who, because of the neoliberal onslaught, see no reason to trust anything that government says. Uh, They've been hung out to dry for 40 years. Uh, Thatcher's, uh, there is no society meaning you're just alone to face the ravages of the market. Government has no responsibility for you. Society has no responsibility for you. There is no society. Just try to make it on your own. And all of a sudden, these guys come around who never cared for you for 40 years and are saying, stick a needle in your arm. Why should I pay attention to them? Uh, This is a general dissolution of social bonds. Uh, uh, and it, it's dramatic in the United States and England, shows up in other ways in other countries. But there is, in general, a uh, sense of disillusionment, anger. Uh, society does nothing for us. We're out on our own. Uh, so it can be translated into dislike of what's called capitalism. Actually, if you look at the people themselves who say that they're anti-capitalist, they're mostly supporters of people like Bernie Sanders, who's a moderate social democrat. By European standards, he'd be considered moderate social democrat. In fact, there was a comment a couple of months ago by one of the editors of the London Financial Times, world's main business journal, partly a radical journal, Rana Forovar. She pointed out as a 
kind of a semi-joke, but it's not a joke, that if Bernie Sanders was in Germany, he could be running on the conservative Christian Democrat ticket, which is in fact correct. If you look at his programs, they're what people in Europe just take for granted. Universal health care, free higher education, maternal leave for women. The United States is very backward on social justice. It's been severely harmed by the neoliberal wave, just as England has been. Uh, so what seems radical in the United States is pretty normal among countries that have held on to some measure of the social democratic developments that actually began in the United States in the 1930s and then took off in Europe after the Second World War, but have been, been under bitter attack in the United States to a second by the business classes, and similarly in England, and with Reagan and Thatcher that just became uh, an overwhelming offensive. So, so, and it's, of course, it spread over the world because of US power. So there's aspects of it everywhere. The, uh, Latin America went through a couple of decades of uh, de-development uh, under the structural adjustment programs imposed by the international economic institutions in the uh, 80s, uh, 90s, under the neoliberal impact. There's many other examples. So you see, going back to your question, I think opposition to capitalism is a way in which some people, young people, frame their disillusionment and anger with the attack on the population in the past 40 years, which they've suffered too. So in England, for example, right now there's a university strike going on by young people who have been casualized when part of the neoliberal program has been to eliminate uh, solid uh, work, reliable work, and to turn much of the population into what's sometimes called a precariat. Get by if you can, you're not gonna have uh, benefits, uh, you're not gonna have security, that's all gone, as Thatcher explained. So by now, uh, casualized adjuncts in universities who teach but have no security and no, no support are on strike for, against the destruction of the university system that has been a leading feature of Thatcher and uh, Blair's New Labour, Thatcher Light, as it was called. And it's happening everywhere. Same in the United States. We actually have some measures of how severe this attack has been. So in the United States, the Rand Corporation, highly respectable corporation, government-linked, does regular studies on many topics. Uh, they recently did a study 
on uh, what they call the transfer of wealth, a light term for highway robbery, the transfer of wealth from the lower 90% of the population, that's the working class, the middle class, transfer of wealth from them to the super rich 1%, fraction of 1% during the 40 neoliberal years. Their estimate is close to $50 trillion of robbery of the general population by the very rich during these 40 years. Well, that's one measure. There are many others, like the breakdown of social structures, of support systems, of the welfare, of the reliable uh, work. Uh, all of these things are tied together. So it shows up as opposition to what's called capitalism. So this kind of ties back to my previous question, but, you know, as Generation Z, we are now faced with a president in the United States who is your typical lukewarm, neoliberal, centrist politician, and we're forced to deal with him in office for at least until 2028. With the climate crisis becoming more and more prominent by the day, our generation desperately needs radical change. So my question to you is, what can we as young people do to solve the crises that our generation faces outside of the electoral system, since we clearly can't rely on the politicians that are bought and paid for by corporations to do so? Well, we saw an example of it at, uh, in Glasgow a couple of weeks ago, COP26. There were two events going on. One event was going on inside the halls where the guys in the suits and ties uh, were talking to each other politely, basically about how not to do anything. A few things, but virtually nothing. Let's meet next year and see if we can think up something. Outside in the streets, there was another event going on. Tens of thousands of young people were demonstrating for exactly what you just said. We want a world to live in, a survivable world, a better world. Well, the answer to your question, I think, will be what the relative forces of these two uh, elements, the suits and ties, can be influenced by popular demonstrations and actions. Uh, we don't, even in a totalitarian state, the uh, leadership has to pay attention to the uh, mood and act activism of the general population. And that's certainly true in more democratic states, not very democratic, but somewhat accountable to the public. So there are things that can be done and they have been done. Take, uh, Joe Biden's uh, programs on climate, they're not very good. They're nowhere near what they ought to be, but they happen to be much better than anything that preceded, much better than anything that Obama proposed. Trump can't even talk about it. He just wanted to waste the precipice. But it's, uh, and they were not there just because uh, Biden decided it would be a nice thing to do. It was pressed by act young activists 
very significantly. Uh, so some, there is a movement of young activists uh, called the Sunrise Movement, which has been militantly acting to try to build up support for doing something about this catastrophe. At one point, they reached the level of occupying congressional offices, including the office of the uh, Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, normally, they would just get thrown out by Capitol Police, but not this time. They were joined by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, young representative who came in on the Sanders wave. Uh, she enlisted support from a, a senator from Massachusetts who'd been involved in environmental issues. Uh, the two of them and the Sunrise Movement managed to forge a policy for the Biden administration, which the mainstream Democrats, the Clinton, Obama Democrats, tried to stop but it partially got through. Now it's working its way through Congress. Republicans are 100% opposed, and there are several right-wing Democrats who go along with them. So it'll be very hard to get anything through, but that's the kind of pressure that can work. In fact, Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Senator Ed Markey, who joined her, uh, uh, do have legislation uh, proposed in Congress, which would deal effectively with the immediate climate crisis, very much along the lines of proposals by the International Energy Agency economists who worked on this, like my colleague Robert Pollan, very much within that framework, feasible measures that could be taken which would alleviate and overcome the immediate crisis, open the door to better ways. It's sitting there. And if there's enough popular pressure, it could move on to legislation. But that's going to take a lot of work. You have to bring a lot of the population along with you. That takes work. So in the United States, for example, uh, there are careful polls on these issues. Turns out during the Trump years, four Trump years, among Republicans, concern over climate reduced by about 20%, despite the increasing evidence in storms and extreme weather events. But under Trump, there was a 20% reduction among Republicans in thinking that it's a serious issue, even a serious issue, let alone an urgent one. Well, that has to be overcome. It's not going to be overcome by magic. It's going to take hard work in the streets, in neighborhoods, in meeting with people, organized groups, local groups, uh, local efforts uh, pressing on to federal government programs. All of that can be done. It's a lot of work. It's not going to happen easily. And if it isn't done, we're finished. It's as simple as that. 
Um, I want to shift topics a little bit here. So as you know, the Omicron variant of COVID-19 has been spreading across the globe, and several countries have shut down travel from African countries where the variant originated. If the United States is forced to undergo another lockdown, similar to when the Delta variant first emerged earlier this year due to the Omicron variant, how do you think that lockdown will play out in terms of will people actually abide by the lockdowns? What are the greater effects it will have on our society at large? I think a lockdown in the United States is very unlikely. Uh, the Republican Party is bitterly opposed to any government measures that would alleviate the crisis. Uh, they are happy to see people die. They don't care. Uh, if the crisis is worse, there's more anger, more dissatisfaction. They can blame it on the Democrats. They can come back to power. So what you're finding is in, in the Republican states, like where I live in Arizona, the Rep Republican go governors are uh, passing regulations, executive orders, banning mandates, banning lockdowns, banning even measures to insist on masks. Now, they don't care. Uh, it's, uh, and in the face of that opposition and a strong anti-vaccine movement, which is sponsored by primarily the Republican Party and the right-wing media, Fox News, but also with some left participants. In the face of all that, it's very unlikely that any uh, stringent measures will be imposed. In fact, right now, uh, Biden's proposal that businesses with over 500 employees uh, institute either a vaccination mandate or testing showing that you have been tested and you're immune. That's one or the other. Even that a weak measure like that is being harsh, severely contested in the courts by the far right. And they'll hold it up for the way the legal system works. This will be held up until it's much too late to have an effect. Um, going off on that note about President Biden, recently President Biden's approval rating has dropped to a record low 42%, according to a new NPR poll, due to voter concerns over inflation, gas prices, and their perceived mishandling of the Afghanistan withdrawal. Noting this information, what, what is your prediction for the 2022 congressional midterms? I think there's a good chance that the Republicans will come back in 2022 and then probably on to 2024. They have a winning strategy. It's very open and overt. It's not concealed. It's announced by top Republican leaders like Mitch McConnell, the majority Senate minority. The strategy is twofold. One, make, harm the country as much as possible. Make the country ungovernable. Uh, so that people suffer. And then we can blame it on the party in office and we can come back to power. But the other part of the program is change 
the electoral system so that a minority party, which the Republicans are, can win elections, even if they lose the vote, which is the usual case, incidentally. In 2016, Trump lost the popular vote by 3 million, 2020 by 7 million. You look at elections for the House of Representatives, Republicans usually lose in the popular vote, but win the majority of representatives. There's a lot of reasons for this, but they were structural reasons, uh, which give extra power to conservative, rural, uh, white supremacist, Christian nationalist areas. Uh, also, the Senate, if you look at it, is radically undemocratic. So, uh, state like Wyoming, rural Republican state, has 500,000 people, two senators. Uh, California, mainly liberal, 47 million people, two senators. That's the way the system is set up. But they're trying to extend that by passing laws which will make it harder for poor people to vote, for minorities to vote, working people, the groups that tend to be pro-democratic make it harder for them to vote in many ways. Even threaten, they're now threatening election observers, intimidating them so that many simply are afraid to serve. So they can put in Republican, loyal Republican election observers who may help to swing the vote. This is happening state after state. So between making the electoral system even less representative than it is now and harming the country and blaming the Democrats. It's a winning strategy. In fact, take the examples you mentioned. Uh, take the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Take a close look at that. You see the utter shamelessness of the Republican Party which is not an ordinary political party anymore. It's a, it's a gang, basically. What happened with the withdrawal from Afghanistan? In February 2020, President Trump in office arranged total withdrawal from Afghanistan. In May 2021, worst moment, right when the fighting season begins. No unconditioned, no conditions on the Taliban. Do whatever you like. Uh, that was Trump. Republican Party held this as a magnificent achievement by our uh, amazing leader. Look at the Republican Party webpage. They praised this as a magnificent achievement. Well, Biden came along. He improved it somewhat delayed the withdrawal, added some conditions. Predictably, it was a disaster anyway. As soon as the disaster came, the Republican Party took it off its webpage, took off the glowing tributes to Trump from the webpage, and began denouncing the, the Democrats for actually implementing a better version of what they were praising. Complete 
shamelessness. We don't care about anything. Just get power, no matter how we can do it. Same with inflation. Inflation is 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 a problem, probably temporary problem, coming from mostly a breakdown in supply chains, shortage of truckers, uh, a shortage of chips. Over some time, it'll be resolved. But you can use that as a weapon against Democrats. Uh, same with the. It's the same on everything. It's just a totally unscrupulous uh, political organization, which has no interest. It's two interests. One is to serve their masters, the super rich and the corporate sector. It's the primary goal. Second one is to gain political power by whatever means possible. And it's uh, a strategy that can win. So I want to shift topics here one last time. In the past couple of weeks, we saw the results of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial where he was released on all charges. For some context, Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed two men at a Black Lives Matter protest last summer in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I was wondering what your perspective was on the ruling of the Rittenhouse case and the precedent that it sets. Well, in a very narrow sense, technical legal sense, the jury's decision in the Rittenhouse case can be justified. The self-defense laws in the United States are very weak. All you have to say is, I felt threatened. That's about it. Then you can plead self-defense. And technically, that's probably an understandable decision. The real issues are different. What kind of a society is it? where a probably mentally disturbed 17-year-old child can illegally, illegally obtain an assault rifle across state lines and go, in his words, to protect the property of white store owners who he thinks are being attacked by blacks. What kind of a society is it that even tolerates this? That's the question. Now, what's happening to Rittenhouse afterwards is quite interesting. He's being turned into a superhero by the Republican establishment. They've turned to Fox News, Murdoch News, their leading correspondent, Tucker Carlson, has an interview with him where he describes him as a lovely, white uh, boy, innocent white boy, who's being attacked by these crazy left lunatics. Uh, he'll probably be a speaker at the next uh, Republican convention. Uh, he'll, he's turned into a symbol of defense of, of essentially white supremacy and gun culture against the crazy left. Uh, that's what's being done. This is not a comment on him. He may not even know what's happened, but that's the way he's being constructed. The Republicans have a very effective public relations propaganda system. Actually, that's uh, why is Ronald Reagan regarded as a 
major political figure has a horrible record, wasn't particularly popular during his terms in office. When he left office, his popularity rating was about the norm, nothing much. But after he left, a huge campaign was launched, Reagan's legacy campaign, ton of money behind it to create an image of a amazing, magnificent figure uh, who uh, is our god and our idol. Uh, you can actually read things in the intellectual sector of the Republican Party, Stanford University, which has a major research center, the Hoover Institute. Two scholars there wrote that whatever problems we have, we're safe because the spirit of Ronald Reagan is hovering over us like a warm and friendly ghost. So he'll save us. It's the kind of thing you get, you don't get in civilized society. But that's Stanford University's Hoover Institution it's selling their version of the Reagan myth. So these things can be done. And uh, it's being done with this poor kid, Kyle Rittenhouse, who probably doesn't even know what's happening to him. But the real issues are not the trial. There, the legal system is so weak that it has nothing to say. But the fact that, as I said, that you can't get a 17-year-old kid who doesn't know what he's doing to get hold of an assault rifle illegally and go somewhere to protect the property of white people. Just think what all this means about the society. Well, Professor, that's all I have for you today. But once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you.